Welcome to the Leading Edge in Emotionally Focused Therapy with your hosts, Dr. James Hawkins and Dr. Ryan Reyna. EFT is a dynamic model that humbles even the most seasoned therapists. Together, we want to come alongside you as you continually push the leading edge of your understanding and application of this wonderful model developed by Dr. Susan Johnson. Welcome. We're excited about today's episode. Um, I want to give a quick background about what and why we're doing this, looking at uh, EFT concepts applied to ra racial reconciliation and healing this, what this podcast, as well as our journey in this area, came from a series of conversations looking at what's going on in our culture uh, in our towns and states, um, you know, looking at violence, looking at um, polarization among race, and knowing that none of us can really win from those kind of places. And so uh, James and I and others have uh, been having conversations because one of the things that, that we notice is uh, we don't talk about it enough. When we do talk about it, we get stuck in sort of debates on whether or not it's true, whether it really is a problem, and maybe whose fault it is, which also goes nowhere. And so what we're looking for is a better way to have this conversation, a way that can be productive and a way that can bring forth real change and not just sort of empty dialogue. And so that's sort of the background of how we began to look at EFT applied to race in our culture. Yeah. And it has been a beautiful journey. Really, it has, Ryan. I think for me, being able to have the productive conversation really helped me find my emotional balance in it it helped me find like the sense of support. So I know some people would say in society, like we talk, we talk, we talk, but we don't ever do anything. But what I found is when people can have meaningful conversations and feel bonding and connected, it's amazing the action that can come out of that. And so even, I guess I want to give a little bit of the story of what this looked like for us. It's been really, it's been a privilege to watch. And so even part of that story is, you know, Ryan and I talking, Ryan, you know, me, Ryan and George, and then we brought Charlie in. It's been a, a lot, a host of voices. But one of those voices we do want to give credit to is Sue Johnson. I remember being at a conference and getting to meet Sue, and immediately Sue, she called us together to have a meeting. She called other therapists in of different ethnic backgrounds, and she wanted to give her own personal time and energy to how can I walk with you in this. I recognize that EFT and attachment is, that un attachment is universal to all human beings, no matter what ethnic group, orientation, economic status. And, and so really I, I had to let Sue know, like, Sue, that's true. But EFT does so much more than just talk about like this universal EFT for me gives us a map. Well, let me before, it gives us a map of looking at distress. And so I really appreciate it, Sue, of being a, kind of like a consultant in this process, right? Even consulting her when we started forming what we call the healing conversation class. And she allowed us to kind of have some permission to use the hold me tight material to be able to give us an outline for this and navigating, helping people have difficult conversations. But then also just getting to talk with Sue more and her saying, I want to be a part of this. I want to help you with this. I believe it's a beautiful thing. And I love when people use this model that I've spent all these years on in creative ways to help society be able to connect. And with that, Ryan, you really introduced a piece to me that I think helped revolutionize this for me. Can you tell about that part with a, how to deal with attachment injuries? Yeah, that's the great part is we already have a map that's very, very similar and very useful as a tool to um, move this conversation along towards healing. And that is NEFT, the attachment injury repair model that is uh, built from the start to address 
when an important relationship has a deep betrayal and the wounds that are there and the wounds that aren't balanced and uh, how loaded these conversations can become. And, but, but this model really gives us clarity on how to move through this in a productive way. So a lot of what we're trying to do is to look at how we apply the attachment injury repair model and EFT to racial healing and reconciliation. So far, it's been a great journey. I get the sense that we're just beginning with it. So we're excited to see how this goes. Yeah, I totally 100% agree, Ryan. So what y'all are about to hear on the rest of this podcast is you're going to hear an interview with myself and Ryan and our, our colleague and mentor, pretty much, George Fowler, and another therapist from Little Rock, Arkansas named Charlie Simpson. So we hope you enjoy. Listen to this time of four guys from different backgrounds getting together, having a conversation about something that really most people in society get stuck. Hello, and welcome back to the Leading Edge Podcast in Emotionally Focused Therapy with your host here, Dr. James Hawkins, and my co-host, Dr. Ryan Reyna. And we are blessed and privileged to have in the studio with us today two guests with us. All the way from Little Rock, Arkansas, we have Charlie Simpson. And Charlie is the owner and founder of Arkansas Relationship Counseling. Correct. He's an LPC, LMFT. And Charlie, man, we thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. And we have also another guest all the way from New York. We have George <laughs> George Fowler, the president of New York Center Eat for EFT. He is also an ICEF certified supervisor and trainer. And George, we're glad to have you with us here today. Giddy up. Giddy up. Right, <laughs> man. So we're going to, on the leading edge, we want to always be on the leading edge of what it means to be therapists, clinicians, and helpers out there on topics that really we're trying to help equip people to be in tough places with people on that leading edge and equipping them with skills and with new ways to help make things, to help help people do better. Right. And so one of the areas we're going to be talking about today, and we've been talking about really all day together, is this area around race. And so you can't see us, so I do want to make the obvious kind of known. You have in this room two African-American men that come into this conversation, but still from different perspectives. I'm African-American guy that's a Yankee. <laughs> Charlie, you are from, what, Malvern, Arkansas? Yeah. Man, below that Mason-Dixon line, man. <laughs> but then we have George, where, you know, in one way we could look at George and say, hey, he's a white guy, but George is an Irish New Yorker. Yeah? Yes. Police, firefighter, now therapist, right? There you go. Then we got Ryan Reyna that is from Northeast Arkansas. That's right. <laughs> Newport. Newport. <laughs> There we go. Kind of like the football player, jock kind of guy, multiple sport. Famous ice skater. Yeah, yeah, he is a famous ice skater. That's true. Fame also, can go many ways. That's it. So we just want to give you a little bit of perspective. We recognize we're all guys kind of socioeconomically be identified as middle class, but here we are trying to wrestle with this and what it means to have this conversation. So, Charlie, I just want to kind of, for you, from your perspective and being in society, the world, a therapist, how have you kind of seen this conversation, what, ha what happens when it goes wrong, or ways in which we get stuck in this conversation? Yeah, this is definitely a difficult conversation, very sensitive, and to the point where we just oftentimes just try to stay quiet for those individuals that very rarely like to address or be controversial, to where you have the other side that's just very controversial and make sure that they share their point and would like to be heard and and, you know, you typically just have that stereotypical, usually the African-American is just the angry black person, man, woman. 
and we just feeling oppressed and just at that place where we just feel like we're not being heard and and we're going to fight for justice and that 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 pretty much mentality of being able to move on in that per- perspective but you combine that with mm-hmm. a white perspective of I'm not going to voice how I feel or how I see that particular issue. I'm just going to stay quiet and I don't want to make this any worse. And so you start to see just this, this divisiveness with just the country with one people going in one direction and another people going in another direction. And we just kind of avoid having healthy conversations. We typically have challenging, aggressive conversations, but just to be able to have that healthy conversation around race. And a lot of people get hurt in the meantime. Exactly. Because we can't find common ground and, and making a space for us to uh, to be on the same page, and people literally are dying from it. Right, mm-hmm. right. So it's such an honor to have this conversation. And um, instead of just pushing that this sensitive topic to the side, we're just in a place where we would like to just address it and be able to hopefully provide some tips on how people can maybe come around this conversation in a much more healthier manner. Exactly. I think the spirit of what we're trying to do today and in this podcast is that people can have this conversation, actually have some success, feel better after having that conversation. Yeah. I think too much of the stigma out there today is, you know, there's is shaming people to have these conversations or not have these conversations. And that just reinforces more reluctance to disengage when in something that's so important to talk about. Yeah. And even as you talk about that, George, that's one side of it about shaming people to have these conversations. Uh, it definitely is unproductive. But then another place where this conversation gets dropped is when we have it and people pull away and they shut down, and then it feels like I don't feel like putting my pain out there to only be turned away from or rejected and left in that place. So then it makes me have funky energy when I kind of try it, when it does come up into this conversation. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I think the leading edge point that from for us today as we talked about this is really it, it feels so counterintuitive to our human nature. But to really what we've seen to talk about having success in this is for both sides when we come into it, being able to see our own personal moves that we make. Right. But then this is the leading edge moment right here. What really can shape this conversation is not only do I recognize mine and I honor that in the ways and recognizing what function it serves in me. Mm-hmm. But then I, the flip side is being able to say, hey, I can see the moves you make and I can give voice to it. And the very good reasons why you make those moves in this conversation. Yeah. Yes. Let's backtrack a second though. I think it's really important to follow that principle of connecting first before you try to stretch and get people to see someone else's perspective. Right. That's right. So, you know, as, as a white guy, I, I need to understand me and why I can get so defensive in these conversations, why I want to avoid these conversations, why when I find myself in them, I might want to just placate the calm, make it good, and then just go away, right? Mm -hmm. And you're understanding the good moves for your anger. I think that's the first step. Mm -hmm. But that second step, now that we kind of understand our own moves, that the leap is, can I see your move? Can I see the good reasons for this behavior in you that I might not like? Can you see this? And I think Charlie did a great job of, of really explaining this setup. Why so often this goes badly, because if you're going to come at me with anger and that makes me get defensive and I go away and I go away, which is the worst thing for your anger. We're not set up for success (laughs) in this conversation. Because what we do is we just get louder with our anger and and just continue to, 
causes this cycle to where I, we just get louder and, and, and other people just kind of get quiet and nothing really gets gets heard or resolved. Mm-hmm. And the louder it gets, the more entrenched we get in yeah. and seeing the other person is the villain. Right. And then it's it's we're more reluctant or mistrustful to have one of these conversations. Definitely. Definitely. Awesome. So you ready, kind of, George, where we go into like helping make that clear? I don't yes. know if we're in that place where we make that clear. We're one. Let's make these moves a little bit more clear about because what we typically see in this conversation is two moves, kind of anger and defensiveness. Yes. Mm-hmm. And those serve very good functions for very good reasons when we put it in context. Yeah. Yes. But then they also set us up for more failure as we try and do, talk about a topic that is just emotionally loaded and very rightfully so. Right. 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 And if we want to build a bridge we're really going to have to get each other's moves. All right. So for me to really understand the function of your anger, right? That if, if you don't say anything at all, nothing's going to change. You're going to carry around this weight of messages of oppression and being less than, and it's so normal that when something's unfair, you want to protest, mm-hmm. but then when you're protest, you're blamed for being angry all the time. I mean, mm-hmm. you're, you're choosing between these bad options constantly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so for me to really recognize that that anger is predictable, that's just what humans do when they're in an unfair situation and they want something to change, that mm-hmm. your anger is your hope. And I start to see that as your hope that this is you trying to engage. It's because you care and you want something different, right? right? I, I really want to learn how to lean into that anger instead of taking it so personal. Yeah. And I think as I sit over here and I think about the defensiveness that comes up and I even just begin to see that and take that into my body. And what it says to me is like, man, that defensiveness is a protection for very good reasons, because it feels like in this conversation, what's being said is, I at my core personality and my personhood is bad and evil and wicked and that there's nothing redeemable about me. And so that I just read that completely as a threat that to completely even come and engage this conversation, I just have to completely lose everything about me. Even though I can say that in culturally in the past and history that there were certain systems that set up in place that I've that I didn't even recognize I was a part of. So part of this even catches me off guard. Yes. So it throws me into disequilibrium to even like, whoa, I didn't know this about some of these historical elements and ways in which it still lives in our systems today. So that throws me off. And then now it's like, but I am representative of all the evil about this. And so my defensiveness just blocks you out. Mm-hmm. And another component that you all had mentioned before you all go into this role play, and that is being able to understand that personally. You know, what's really happening with my anger? What's really happening with my <coughs> defensiveness? And what do I need to do with that before I can even take a much more vulnerable step and try to be there for you and your defensiveness or be there for you and your pain? I'm kind of curious for you, uh, uh, George, what was it like for you to experience James kind of taking on your perspective and and honoring uh, what might have been your experience? How was that for you to hear that today? It was, uh, I feels good that James is trying to recognize the struggle that I mean, I feel like engaging in this conversation, my heart's in the right place because I really do want to bridge the distance. So I, my, my heart's actually looking for a good job, yeah. mm. right? And yet when I get the anger, it's like, wait a second, that's not what I really was ready for. Mm. And I try to hang in there, but if I don't make a dent in it, 
you know, mm -hmm. that, that avoidance allows me to get away from, from the, from that bad feeling in myself. So I felt like you were really capturing that bind. It's like, there's, you know, the part that I'm trying to fight this message, right? I'm not, I'm trying to prove to you I'm not a bad guy. Yeah. Right. And yet it, it seems like that's what I'm getting. So I felt like James just, just appreciating this. It wasn't so easy for me. I just felt my body calming down a bit. Mm -hmm. You felt that calming down, yeah, mm -hmm. which, exactly. which we find when you can, have that experience, it opens up a space for a different kind of conversation. Opening right? up is the perfect word. Mm -hmm. I felt myself wanting to engage instead of wanting to go away. I wanted mm -hmm. to say, hey, wait, James, can you, mm -hmm. I want to tell you more. You know, I actually found myself leaning mm -hmm. towards. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how about for you, James, when you were able to, to watch George try on your experience, what was that like for you? Oh, man, I think the word that just resonates through me is I can trust. Mm. That I can, I can, some of that energy that I was putting into the protest to try and get George to see something, I can, I can, I can lay some of that. I can use that energy now towards something else, and that we can now. I do feel more open to have a conversation with George. Yeah. Awesome, yeah. So, kind of segue in here a little bit, and you guys can jump in with me if you want. Um, you know, you just kind of did a, a, a short model of how this could be different, mm -hmm. but the reality is that's not a conversation that's happening very often. Yeah, around our country, we get stuck in cycles of feeling misunderstood or, or, you know, unsafe as it may be. And I want to just run through a couple of things that I've had recent conversations with people around me on sort of the, for lack of a better way to say it, the white side of the issue, you know, that, that actually fuels more separation. You know, the first one being this idea of being colorblind, you know, this, this notion that I don't see color or color is not a factor here. We, why are we even talking about it? Right, which is really, really a common place. First of all, I mean that's impossible. We all we all notice what we notice. We've all had the experiences that we've had, and we see what we see, which which affects our expectation. Um, you know, so what I, what I would say, and I don't know if how you guys feel about this, but I do think that color being colorblind is a great goal, but not a great strategy. I know I did my first report on uh, Martin Luther King in fourth grade and that was an element of his dream mm -hmm. that that race would not be the variable that was um people conclude others about so i'm curious what, what's your thoughts on that it, it's so interesting because i feel like um um I'm being the black male right now who wants a protest. Like, how do you get the luxury to be colorblind? I don't have that mm. luxury. Like, I want to scream at that. And yet, this is exactly what we're talking about. It's mm -hmm. that anger that's just a normal response to not really being seen. And yet, somehow, then that's going to be used as evidence that I'm too much, which is just like a circular argument. Go. So, it's so interesting how just leaning into James's experience for a couple of minutes allowed me to hear what you were saying in a very different way. I've, I've said that to my whole life. Like, hey, we're all colorblind. What does it really matter? You know, and yet, it, it does matter. Yeah, and I want to come back to what Ryan's saying, but I thought what, what you did there, George, when I think about leading in, on the leading edge of this, what you just did is a transformational moment in this conversation. I'm not, I'm sitting over here. I'm not expecting anything from you because you've heard my experience. You've heard Charles experience. You've heard so many people's experience and now you've taken it in and you've made it your own. And you thought as though you were me, even as you heard Ryan say something, my story is now a part of your story and it carries with you. That's how we change society Pretty cool. right there. Pretty cool. Anyway, I just wanted to catch that moment, right? So I'm sorry. What was the original question that you sent over to George? <laughs> 
Uh, so he answered it. Okay, gotcha. I'll throw one more out here, and then we'll change it up. But, you know, a funny thing about human behavior, everybody has a reason to do what they've done. Mm. Whether it's a good enough reason or not, it's another discussion. But So if I have a racist thought, mm-hmm. or if I do something that's racist, there's always some reason I did it, mm. right? So it's kind of sort of a justification. And oftentimes in that way, people kind of, we can kind of excuse ourselves. Mm. We had a good reason for X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. Is that making sense? Mm-hmm. And so I think for, I think part of the problem here is when the issue of, you know, racial reconciliation or whatever you want to call it, when it comes up, people often think this is irrelevant to me. <laughs> like mm. this is not even about me or relevant to me. Wow. Yeah. And, and yet at the same time, you, you put on any social media and people are intensely passionate about some political issue. Yeah. Everyone that's listening to this, has some political issue that they're passionate about, even if it's not necessarily their issue. So if someone, I'm not trying to make a statement here, but you know, if, if someone, if a man, for instance, is passionately pro-life, you know, anti-abortion, he doesn't have to have had an abortion to still be passionate about this issue or to still have a role. And yet somehow in the racial conversation, we don't quite make that leap. Mm. Do, do you see that as well? Oh yeah, totally. Because that can make it where I'm one step removed or I feel like I'm one step removed. So therefore, I don't have to engage with it when really what we do need to be able to see at society is this really does affect us. You know, and I like how Martin Luther King really said it. He says that we need to see that we really are tied together in an inescapable mutuality that one affects one affects us all. And we know this as therapists in this room that see the world through attachment perspective that Yes, if there's any particular people or group that is being affected, it really does have an effect on us all. One, because it should affect our humanity. One of the quotes I love from Sue that she shared in her trauma book was, one of the traumas that's really hard for us to make us to make room for, or what makes trauma so hard is the fact that another human being is the one that inflicted my pain. Yes. And so even for that in society, that helps open open space for me, for people for experiences that I have not experienced myself to see other people's pain and imagine what that pain feels like in my body. So, so going to even that example, yeah, I can join in because I know pain. I don't know exactly pro-life or whatever, but I know pain. So therefore I can join in and be a part of healing. And I still have a role. There you go. Even if it doesn't directly involve me exactly. in every situation. Exactly. And as we try to make this more practical and apply it to therapists, who often are not trained how to have these conversations or how to do an assessment. I thought, James, what you were talking about earlier, having two clients coming in, you know, one saying, hey, I don't want to talk about these racial issues, and the other one saying, this is exactly what I need to talk about, right? right? And how as a therapist can we distinguish between which direction we need to go? How do we get more comfortable with these pivots that we need to make in session That's we can follow what's in the best interest of our clients around these topics of race? And I know that the one specific term that we went to was wait until the clients will open up that world Mm -hmm. and if we see the client begin to show certain body shifts uh, being uncomfortable if there's a a a, a therapist of different race and being able to catch those types of movements that body language just like we're trained to catch certain touches of the hand or just a touch on the leg it's up to us to be able to catch and be able to open up that world and see if that is a issue or what is the client thinking about in this moment 
and being able to just go into that world. And I know we shared the example of what if we just tried to all of a sudden start a session and just open up that world about racism and that's not even the client's issue or, or right. perspective. And, and all of a sudden we just start to go into, instead of a professional perspective, it becomes more of a, a personal insecurity with that therapist. And, and we find ourselves just getting lost in a topic that really is irrelevant to the client, but being able to make sure that we are moving with the client and having those conversations with the client when we see that they need to have those conversations. So important. The way we were breaking it down is it is two parts in the therapeutic process. You know, one is the assessment piece. We we need to ask somebody in that first session where do they social where do they locate themselves, right? Mm -hmm. We do need to do an assessment that says, Hey, we're confronting this issue. We know this is part of what's happening here. Right. But it doesn't end there. What right. you're saying is even more important. How do we continue, continually assess during the process right. for when the cultural piece is going to become more relevant right. that we need to pivot and turn towards that? Definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, about, after about six hours of discussion today, we started <laughs> playing with the term loaded attunement. Yeah. Because this is really an attunement issue, the ability to have empathy and to demonstrate that empathy for the, the, the whole world of the client we're talking to including everything their their history their current relationship as well as what their experiences have been like particularly if it's if it's been marginalized mm -hmm. and and so lo by loaded what we mean though is that's not always easy to do if you don't attune enough to that part of their world that's very much misattunement mm -hmm. and and can can block the therapeutic process but other people don't want that included as much right and so you, it's not a one size fits all. You got to be constantly paying attention to the cues and the experience of the client. Mm -hmm. and, and so back to the other side, though, it can be very loaded. It can be loaded with with difficult situations where uh, their marginalized experiences can play huge factors in their experience. It can also be in the way of deeper factors that we need to talk mm -hmm. through. So it can be kind of loaded in that way. And then also, you know, moving way ahead of ourselves, but it can also be loaded with opportunity. Right. For some people, if you can meet them in that space, mm -hmm. see them, honor them, can give them a corrective experience with us, that can be a, you know, a, a really healing moment. Right. Um, so, so either way, it's probably pretty loaded. Yeah. Just to add to the timing of it, I think so often as therapists, we're in a rush to give people success in their vulnerability, that we blow past the power of their defensiveness. I think it's so empowering for somebody who's, who's been marginalized that to be seen for the cost of that and to take some kind of responsibility is often what it can be so transformative, right? Instead of racing towards, can you take in the embrace and the healing and the hug, being given permission for the anger is 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 the really most important first step. That's beautiful, man. Um, man, this we know that this topic is so big, and we could go on and on. But we want to do want to hit another point, Ryan. Right? Just really quickly, I thought I thought we might end on a sports metaphor. I'm, I'm too <laughs> for two today. All right. <laughs> but but seriously, you know, one of the places you see this done pretty well and really quickly is on some sports teams. You know, Charlie and I may relate to this being small town uh, Southern guys, but, you know, in my hometown, 
Um, you know, we some, don't play sports up north. What's going on here? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe a little different. Cultural bias, right there. That's right. I, I, I got called out. Thank you. Uh, you know, two two pieces that were not so great in my local community is is there was unofficial segregation. Mm. No one really talked about it. It wasn't anything formal. But most of my black friends lived on one side of town. Most of my white friends lived on a different side of town, mm-hmm. and nobody really talked about it. So there's two pieces that aren't good. You, you can't solve something if we can't discuss it. And then at the same time, though, my hometown was all about our local football team. And I'll never forget when, when practice would start, it would kind of be the white guys on one side and the black guys on. But then we, we spent tons of time together right. <laughs> and dressed in the same locker room and wore the same equipment. Mm. And you know what happened next? We started to suffer together, right. which meant we worked hard and th- you know, threw up and lifted weights and were sore. And we spent more time together. And slowly it started to, to integrate naturally. Because ultimately, we were about a bigger sort of uh, goal than our differences. Right. So how do we replicate some of those same dynamics in our culture and even in our therapy rooms? I mean, I think you, that's that's kind of a little metaphor that we can maybe learn from. I like that, Ryan. Even when we're thinking about leading edge is that for you as therapists, we really do want to equip you to be able to do this well um, because it's hard. And so being able to validate good reasons for people's anger, good reasons for defensiveness, whether you're doing this work in society and culture, or you're a leader in an organization, you have to be on that leading edge of being able to take on and hold both two experiences, uh, to, to do this conversation different rather than kind of digging your heels into what your position is and how the other side's evil and bad. But then even in the therapy room, as you as the therapist, you're a leader in that spot. And so you've got to be on the leading edge for your clients and being able to go into that assessment time and to be able to ask those questions. But even as Charlie was saying, don't go beyond where the client is and try and make something be there. That's not really there, but then it is so loaded. There's so much loaded into that moment that you don't know, but we do need to be able to ask and go there and just in a very attuned way with our clients. But even as I think about our therapists, how do we get better at doing this? And you're right, Ryan, it's having shared experiences with people that see the world differently, that have different experiences. So that way when we sit in the room with our clients, we have some personal experience and we can learn that from our clients as well. But we just hope that once again, that this podcast has helped you be on the leading edge uh, in emotionally focused therapy. Well, one last thing, (laughs) since we have George Fowler with us, you know, attachment, attachment makes some of these processes predictable. And so now I think our challenge is how do we take the beauty of that and really make a better space for uh, how we address marginalization? We talk about pursuers and withdrawers. Withdrawers have predictable pain, which is the constant sort of sense of being told they're failing and being critical or being criticized, I should say. Marginalization amplifies that, intensifies that adds three extra points of pain, adds even more to overcome to stay present. And pursuers tend to struggle with being not chosen and to feeling abandoned. And so they con- they're constantly searching for why am I not being chosen? And so when you're in a marginalized group, that intensifies those sensations. This is what we're That's dealing good. with right in front of us. That's good. And I would That's encourage good. listeners that this is just the start of a process, that we really welcome the feedback that give us real examples of where you're getting stuck with these conversations that we want, want to make this as practical as possible because that's how, how positive change is going to happen. For both sides. Amen. For those that are angry and the ones that are feeling defensive. And the therapists who are trying to help. Yeah. <laughs> All right, y'all. Thank you so much. Um, thank you for sharing time with us on the Leading Edge podcast. 
Thank you for listening. We hope this experience helps you push the leading edge in your work to help people connect with themselves and with each other. You can contact us at pushtheleadingedge at gmail.com and you can follow us on our Facebook page at Push the Leading Edge. You can follow Ryan Reyna on Facebook at Ryan Reyna Professional Training and on his website, ryanreynatraining.com. You can follow James on Facebook and Instagram at DocHawkLPC. You can also check out his website, DocHawkLPC.com.